When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. In this week's show, we take a look at movements in the coal industry as the U.S. prepares to become the world's most active market. Coal, even if dirty and unpopular and out of fashion, is in great demand. We take a look at oil prices and the call from OPEC's Secretary General for tighter regulations. Abdallah El-Badri is extremely concerned that the paper market is overwhelming the real market in oil and that it now exerts the principal control over oil prices. And we hear about the EU's proposed target of cutting emissions by 30%, in part by looking to the food and drink industry. The responsibility of the agriculture sector for contributing to greenhouse gases has rather gone under the radar for too long. But we start the show with a discussion about the upcoming consultations in the UK on the reform of the electricity market and a carbon price floor. We'll be asking what should we be expecting from the consultations and what do they mean to the consumers. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Joining me to discuss the electricity market is Bill Easton from Ernst Young's Power and Utilities team. Hi, Bill. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Sylvia. Now, the UK electricity market is, is about to undergo a bit of a revolution, I think possibly the sort of biggest shake-up it's seen for the past 20 years since privatisation in 1990. And I just wondered if you could, first of all, sort of talk us through what we're expecting to be coming out from the government next month. I'm frankly not expecting too many surprises now because I think they've they've trailed most of the components over the last few weeks. Um, clearly, the coalition is on record as supporting a carbon price floor, and that will be part of it. But I think the more interesting bits will be the other pieces potentially around some combination of feed-in tariff, contracts for difference, or some form of obligation on suppliers to purchase low carbon. The whole aim, really, of the consultations is, is to move Britain away from using too many fossil fuels onto low carbon generation, wind farms, solar, clean coal, nuclear... Absolutely. It's all about providing an environment in which the people that want to invest in low-carbon generation technologies have the confidence to do so. Just to go back to the carbon floor price, presumably that would be, uh, well, we think it'll be sort of shaped as a sort of tax, I think a carbon tax, which would basically sort of penalise, I guess, investment in, in fossil fuel. Uh, absolutely. It, it changes the relative attractiveness of fossil fuels and nuclear or other low-carbon uh, generation. Incidentally, one of the things we're detecting in the market is some concerns that because the carbon floor price is a tax, it's susceptible to being changed in the future. You know, Administrations can change tax rates. So I think that the, the financial community, the potential investors, might prefer to see more on the feed-in tariff and the contracts for difference side. And how would they work? As always, the devil is in the detail. And we, there's been very little detail published so far. Ultimately, in my view, all of these things come down to a, a combination of prices and quantities. What price are the contracts for difference struck at? And what quantities do they cover? And also the other important thing will be who are the counterparties? 
Uh, is there an obligation on suppliers to enter into these contracts or is there some other uh, counterparty, potentially even National Grid, playing a role with this? In a sense, there'd be an obligation on suppliers, on the sort of utilities, to be able to provide a certain percentage of their power from renewable resources. Yes, I mean, I think that the terminology will be interesting. I mean, I'm not sure they'll see new nuclear as being uh, renewable, but they'll, they'll certainly see it as low carbon. Britain's got some very tough targets, or has at least set itself some very tough targets in terms of reducing emissions. I just wondered w- whether you think Britain can achieve those targets. I think the, the 2020 targets are tight, but still just about achievable. But so I think 2020, that's to reduce emissions by 34%. But the key challenge, I think, from all of these uh, policy initiatives is, is the pace of the ground in the next six months. There is a real requirement to finish the consultation, get things decided and let the industry move on. There'll be quite a lot of investment required. I think Ofgem, the energy regulator, came out with a sort of big figure of £200 billion of investment needed over the next 10 years just to sort of um, improve Britain's infrastructure so that you can you can connect an offshore wind wind farm to, to the national grid. How do you see that being uh, split? A large part of the investment is the, uh, the, the cost of the new generation. Obviously, there's a, a target for something of the order of 26 gigawatts of new wind. A lot of that is still to be financed and and constructed. I think it's also important to remember that 200 billion isn't the whole bill. A number of the things within the Green Deal, uh, the uh, the home insulation, smart metering and so on, have very substantial sticker prices attached as well. So you can quite easily see the total investment across the industry being substantially higher than 200 billion. What does this all mean then for, for consumers? I mean, sort of homeowners, you and me? Inevitably, it means that bills are going up and by a, a reasonably substantial percentage. I think the the, the whole thrust of the, the policy initiatives now are to make sure that the bills don't go up by any more than they have to, that they allow the industry to invest efficiently, finance efficiently. Um, but clearly, uh, given the sums of money that are going to be spent, uh, there, there is going to be an impact on bills. Thank you very much. Um, now, from electricity to coal and the mergers and acquisitions making the US the biggest player in the coal industry going into next year. Javi Blas, the FT's commodities editor, joins me now. Um, hi, Javi. Thanks very hi. much for coming on the show. Tell us what's going on. There's some Why is, why is coal, uh, which we all, all meant to see as a sort of big, great, dirty product, why is coal becoming so sexy suddenly on the M&A scene? Well, because coal, even it's dirty and unpopular and out of fashion, is in great demand, uh, particularly in Asia. And particularly over the last three years, we have a shift in, in the role of China. China, until three years ago, was a net exporter of thermal coal that is used to, to fire power stations. Suddenly, China started to import coal to the tune that this year is going to be at par with Japan, that is the world's largest importer of thermal coal, taking probably about 15% of the global market for seaborne thermal coal. Suddenly, we have a lot of new demand coming. Prices have gone up. We are, at the moment, at a two-year high. And the, the industry is consolidating, both in Indonesia, a big exporter, but also in the United States. Last week, we have $15 billion of M&A activity in the coal industry and the, mine, uh, and the industry who supplies equipment to the coal industry. So this is in the U.S. alone? This was in the U.S. and also in the U.K. and Indonesia. Some big names and interesting names getting into coal. I mean, Nathaniel Rothschild of, of the famous banking family, um, he, he did a deal, did he not, with his cash shell Valar? Uh, last he, week as he, well. He spent about $3 billion buying uh, stakes in two big mining operations in Indonesia. There are some question marks about the deal because it, it's a very tricky business to go 
in, in Indonesia call and also the shareholders, the Indonesian shareholders are going to have effective control of the company. So uh, Rothschild is going to have a, a kind of a passive role on this investment. But at the same time, he's going to bring Bumi of Indonesia, is one of the largest producers of thermal coal, into a listing, a reverse listing in, in the UK. So for, for Bumi, it's a, it's a huge step from being an Indonesia company to have a listing in, in London. And at the same time, we have some deals in the, in the United States and Canada between Walter Energy and Western Coal. It's another $3 billion. And obviously, uh, the, the deal between Caterpillar and Busiros, two producers of mining equipment. But you look at the deal, it seems that it's, it's about mining in general. But if you look at the detail, about 66% of the sales of Busiros uh, goes into uh, equipment for, for coal mining. So at the end of the day, this, this deal is, is highly leveraged to the, to the thermal coal industry. And what's happened to the price of coal um, since these deals were announced? Well, the price of coal has remained uh, roughly balanced since the deals were were announced. We are talking about in Newcastle in Australia, this is the benchmark for Asia, about prices of $150 per tonne. That is a two-year high. But more importantly, a lot of the industries are still using uh, annual contracts linked to the Japanese fiscal year. And executives of traders are telling me that when we re- when the industry goes into annual tolls for next, Next year is uh, the year starting in April. We're going to see prices at the second highest ever level. Just one final question. Is there anybody else out there, any other company that you think might be a vi- become a victim of somebody? I mean, who's sort of in play at the moment? Well, we, we have several companies at play. Uh, we have uh, Drummond Coal. It's a privately held company in Alabama, the United States, that is selling almost all his operations, a big mine in Colombia. Uh, bankers believe that the, that the sale could, could go as high as 6 to $8 billion. We're talking about huge valuations. So we have Drummond with 6 to $8 billion, and we understand that uh, bidders include Strata and Glencore here in Europe, also Peabody of, of the United States. Anglo-American has been looking at it uh, as a ballet of Brazil, although we understand that ballet is not very keen to bid more than $6 billion for this company. And then we have also Massey Energy of the United States, States, another company with market capitalization of about $5 billion that is at play at the moment, and several switchers are looking at it. Analysts believe that the whole sector in the United States is going to go through a big consolidation phase in 2011. We'll be bringing you more updates on that as the stories emerge. Thanks very much, Javier. And now, rising oil prices and the call for more regulation from, of all quarters, OPEC, the producer's cartel. The FT's energy correspondent, David Blair, joins me now to talk about it. David, you saw the Secretary General of OPEC, Abdullah al-Badri, in London earlier this week. Tell us what he said to you. He's very concerned about the speculative market in oil. There are two oil markets, the physical market and the speculative one. And Abdullah al-Badri is extremely concerned that the paper market is overwhelming the real market in oil um, and that it now exerts the principal control over oil prices. And it's the main reason for the recent volatility in the oil price. OPEC is a sort of is it the swing producer in terms of the actual physical supply and demand of oil in the world? Yes. OPEC's 12 member states between them pump about one third of the world's daily consumption of oil. And because they have quota agreements, they have unique influence over the physical market. Their problem is that on a day to day basis, the oil price is often determined by the speculative paper market. And that's what worries Abdallah El-Badri, both because it causes, in his view, unnecessary volatility 
And also, although in fairness to him, he hasn't said this and he wouldn't put it like this, but I will put it in these words for him, it also reduces the power of OPEC and it exposes the degree to which actually OPEC may be not as as powerful as we think it is. Can you give us an example of what's happened in terms of prices in recent days? I mean, by how much have these speculators moved the price? The last three weeks or so are a classic example. The oil price has been pretty volatile. Beginning of the month, it was around about $82, $83 a barrel. It then went up to $89 a barrel, and now it's back down to about $83. So that's quite a big fluctuation. And the interesting thing is that none of that had anything to do with the supply and demand of oil. It actually had nothing to do with physical realities in terms of the oil market and everything to do with the decline in the value of the dollar, the Irish debt crisis uh, and the general sentiment among speculators. So Abdullah al-Badri's point is these speculators have far too much power um, and the forces which they unleash, which shift the oil price all over the place, have significant global consequences. Is his call for greater regulation, is that actually going to fall on any sort of willing willing regulators' ears? The fact is that the biggest element of the market that he's talking about is the market in over-the-counter oil-based derivatives. These are private, they're bilateral deals, and the key to them is that they don't take place on any exchange. So they're not actually subject to the normal regulations that share trading, for example, or foreign currency trading is subject to. Um, so it's very hard to see how you would regulate that market unless you're going to ban it, which no one is suggesting you you would do. It's very difficult to see how you could get on top of this problem. And I have to say that not everyone accepts uh, Abdel al-Badri's view. A lot of analysts would say that, yes, speculators may exacerbate shifts in the oil price, but fundamentally what determines the oil price, or at least the underlying factor behind everything, is the supply and demand of oil. And, and I guess just a final question is, is, what does this sort of then mean about OPEC's role in the world? I mean, I, I guess he would, he would never admit um, that OPEC um, doesn't have a role to play in the oil market, um, but just, just you know, is, is, it a, is it a question that, that it should be asked? Yes, I think OPEC's role is perhaps less important than people might think. OPEC exerts critical influence over the oil price when it decides as a block of 12 producers to reduce quotas and reduce output. But that doesn't happen very often. The last time it happened was two years ago. Um, So at that particular juncture, OPEC is the crucial swing producer. It will influence the price like no one else can. But on a day-to-day basis, like, for example, in the last three weeks, the oil price can ping-pong around in quite a wide band with absolutely no input from OPEC at all and no means by which OPEC could influence that or or curb it. Um, So on a day-to-day basis, OPEC's role is pretty limited. We'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, David. And our final topic today, the food and drinks industry. Fiona Harvey is in Brussels at the Confederation of the Food and Drink Industries Congress discussing the industry's responsibility for a large slice of global greenhouse gas emissions. Fiona spoke earlier to the Director General of the EU Food and Drinks Industry, Mela Fruen, and the Director of the World Wildlife Fund's European Policy Office, Tony Long, and asked what the industry is going to do to reduce its carbon footprint. We have set up a roundtable, which is called the Food Chain Sustainable Consumption and Production Roundtable, where we've gathered everybody. We're looking at ways to effectively um, cut uh, all of these emissions, to reduce water use, to make better use of packaging, to cut down on waste. My, My members are looking at, in their plants, for example, how to make better use of energy, how to make better use of water, uh, how to uh, perhaps uh, use less packaging or more sensible packaging or use renewable products. 
this is what's happening at the industry level. The responsibility of the agriculture sector for contributing to greenhouse gases has rather gone under the radar for too long. This week attended the first meeting of the Commission High-Level Forum on the food supply chain, and there were two or three interventions in the forum in front of uh, Vice President uh, Tahani saying that uh, the future of this food supply uh, high-level forum will need to make sure that it addresses the climate change issue. He took good note of that and he actually pledged that uh, the work of this uh, forum will include the climate change. So I think from now we'll have a, a forum to actually really begin to eat or bite into that issue and find out which parts of the whole agri-food system are contributing most and where are the low-hanging fruits to actually try and uh, tackle that. Greenhouse gases, of course, are just one of the environmental issues facing the industry. Can you just outline what some of the other big issues are? Some of the big companies who are part of my organisation, but also some of the smaller companies as are doing what they can, because at the end of the day... It's also economically interesting for them. Sustainability has three pillars, and so there's the environmental one, which is the, the question you've, you've posed, but it's also economic sustainability and social sustainability. And for us, these two pillars are equally important, of course, but if it makes economic sense, you're killing two birds with one stone. And then, because this is making your industry more competitive, of course, you are uh, also reaching out to the third pillar, which is the social, because it's creating jobs, uh, etc. This week is significant, not just because of the Congress that we've just attended, but also yesterday was the announcement of the directions of the Common Agricultural Policy Reform for the next seven, eight-year period. And what was really significant, I thought, about the document yesterday was just the prominence that was given to the environmental impact and the natural resource impact of the food industry. And, and there was a pledge in the paper yesterday that we'll be moving in a much greener direction in, in agriculture uh, in the future. And so what does that mean? It means that water consumption, which, for instance... 80% of water use in the Mediterranean countries is for agriculture. I mean, so water is going to be front and center an issue. I hope very much, and coming from WWF, I would say this, I hope very much that biodiversity is going to be included in that uh, discussion as, as well as, as water. Finally, one of the big debates going on within uh, the European Union at the moment is whether the EU should move from a target of cutting emissions by 20% by 2020 to a tougher target of cutting emissions by 30% by 2020. So if I could just ask, does the food and drink industry support moving to a 30% emissions cutting target? It's a little bit more complicated than just saying yes or no to this. I think it's, it's essential to be up uh, amongst the leaders in this, and I'm, I'm proud that Europe is there at the top of this, uh, of this path. I don't know if this is a pathway we should be treading on our own. I think it's essential that the others move too. Not only for economic reasons, because there is an edge of competitiveness there, of course, but also because it's only together that we're going to make a big difference. And I think it's essential that we go towards this as partners uh, from a global standpoint and not just Europe. So 20% great, 30% yes, yes, of course, but then let's all do it together and not just Europe. Uh, that would be my message. Well, I'm glad to hear that, that the agriculture um, and food industry will, will support uh, 30% and, uh, well, as, you know, with conditions, of course. But uh, the fact is that we're already minus 17% and we're 2010, so we've got still another 10 years to, to find that other 13%. I don't think that will be so uh, difficult. 
And I would just say that uh, targets are one thing, but it's actually the implementations. And I think that's the real thing that we should also be looking at. Yes, a 30% target, but let's also make sure that we massively investing in energy efficiency. I mean, that's where we can actually gain a lot across the whole, you know, the production system, the retailing system, the, the, the packaging, all of it. That's where we could actually get to 30% and save money and provide the customer with, with a good product. That was Fiona Harvey in Brussels talking earlier today to Mella Fruen and Tony Long. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests in the studio, Bill Easton and Javier and David, and Fiona Harvey in Brussels. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.